a spready mold thing that kind of won me over. So, Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast. I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. And this is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, the illustrious Casey, Pastor Casey, is on assignment, and we are going to be talking authenticity. And for our segment, we're bringing in a new one. It's called One of the Thing. One of These Things Is Like the Other, and uh, that should be fun. It's a, it's a new one, and we're going to experiment with it here on this episode. So, authenticity. Um, I'm wondering if maybe as we kind of get into this conversation, it would be a good place to start with how we all define authenticity. What, what do we mean when we say authenticity or the authentic self? Because every time I think of that, I think of that old Dave Chappelle sketch when keeping it real goes wrong. Anyone ever see that one? That's what I think about where you're Mm -hmm. just like, Mm -hmm. there's no filter. Like sometimes people think authenticity (laughs) is like, there's just no filter and you say whatever's on your mind. And that is a a value in of itself, which that is not my definition of authenticity. But I I do feel like that that becomes, uh, that becomes a lot of people's definition. Yeah. Like chandeliering (laughs) or just saying whatever comes to your mind or saying it like it is as if you were a a demagogue or politician. I, I think the spewing of opinions is revelatory of a lack of authenticity. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) I think of authenticity as like peeling back the layers um, and coming closer and closer to what one might call real or true or like central core. Cause there's all these layers, you know, that of expectations, usually sometimes it's expectations um, that society or culture puts on us because of our identities Sometimes it's expectations we put on ourselves, maybe even because of our personality or the relations that we're born into put on us. And authenticity is actually going through the process of peeling back those layers to uncover like what's real, what's true, what's central, what's core, what can't be peeled back anymore. For me, that that arises in our ability to listen to ourselves. And that usually takes other people to help us even discover what that is. And I think of Parker Palmer. I read his book. Can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but like a hidden wholeness maybe is what the book is called. And it's one thing to be in like a circle with people who are really listening to one individual and people are like giving suggestions or judging them or or uh, kind of invading on their own personhood and space that usually sends whatever authentic self we have into hiding. And he compares it to like a wild animal. I don't know if I share this on a different episode, but he, he compares it to a wild animal, the true self, the inner self, the soul, whatever tradition describes it as it. Um, if you go out into the woods and you try to like say hi to a wild animal and you use a stick and you hit the bushes and you're like, come out, come out, you know, it's going to go into hiding more. But if you can enter their, their area, sit for a long time underneath a tree, eventually they might come out and make an appearance. And 
I know that when I've been with other people and when they've gone through hard things and peeled back all those layers and underneath all the scripts that we usually run, if you just sit with people long enough to let them hear themselves, I think that's when the authentic stuff comes out. That's when the true self comes out. But for me, it's hard because I'm not always listening to that part of myself and can't, can't quite hear it because of the way that we relate. An example of that would be uh, creating like a space for an individual to be able to listen to themselves, discovering that there's something that they need to do. I think one of the examples he used was there was this farmer who was really wrestling with the way he was conducting his business. And if anyone came in and told him what to do, they would have shortcut his process. But listening to him long enough out of his own like inner teacher is what the Quakers call it came this voice that was like, my loyalty is to the land, not necessarily to the folks who were doing this thing to the land. And that that access of that authenticity carries a weight and an authority to it that would not have come if he had had not gone through the process of being able to listen to himself. So I think there's something there. Maybe we'll get in more into that later. But I think that everybody has that part of themselves that if we listen to it, that's what where the authenticity comes from. Yeah. I, I mean, there, Brene Brown is a very popular and quotable person, but she says about authenticity, authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. And when I was, I think I was a freshman in college at a communications professor, first day of class, I was sitting on the front row because I was late. He comes up, puts his finger right in my face and he's like, are you the you that you think you are? Are you the you that they think you are? Or are you the you you truly are? And I was just like, I was like, you know, just trying to figure things out. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that that thing has stayed with me. The, but the, the, the point is, you know, in the last part of Dr. Brown's thought, embracing who we are, like that is a deeply internal and personal process. And as people go through it, the folks that are going through it more deeply and intentionally, you begin to see evidence of that in the way they relate to others and so on. Because somebody walking around claiming self-authenticity, you know, to me raises red flags. Right. But when others who come in contact with someone are saying, you know, that's a really authentic person, then I think that that validates the, the process the person has been undertaking. Can you fake authenticity? I No, I think you can absolutely to yourself. I think our powers of self-deception and delusion are so powerful. And this is speaking as a two. And I think we're way bought in to the idea that we're loving people, whether we are or not. <laughs> and like that, that kind of, you, you can delude yourself into like missing what you're actually feeling and actually thinking. So I think sometimes I come across as a very authentic person. But the layers of what I'm really feeling are so deep that it's sometimes hard to access that space. And uh, so I think you can fake it. I don't think it's a, it makes for a good life. Or, I think when it comes to authenticity, it's easier to fool yourself than it is to fool other people. Maybe. Right. But is that faking it? Like if you believe you're authentic and you're acting authentically, you're not fooling yourself. You're just totally unaware of yourself. And I think that when you're talking about faking it, can I think for the most part, people who are also inauthentic, who are trying to play the game, you can fool them 
but people who have done that work, because I think the authenticity is work. It's hard work and it requires not just internal work. It requires community work because you have to have those outside perspectives. So I feel like for people that are doing that work, I I would say it's almost impossible to fool them. But for people that are just playing that game, like, like if you've been involved and I, I, in my experience, this happens most at ministers conferences. So this has just been my experience where you have this, circle jerk of uh you know church numbers and sermons and techno like all this stuff that they talk about and tout in terms of their and there's this the the institution itself is fake authenticity right like it's and it and the more you involved in it and i found in my experience again the more work i did internally the more like gross those spaces just felt and they were exhausting and then you look around and you see the ones that are totally buying into it are also the same ones that I would never sit down for longer than 10 minutes to have coffee with you because it would feel like that. And um, so, yeah, I think can authenticity be faked? It depends who's looking. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a part of that, but I think lack of awareness, lack of self-awareness is, is, is a clear an impenetrable obstacle to authenticity. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So you can't and fake authenticity because if you're unaware, then you're not faking anything. You're just right. I don't know. I think it's interesting. Like the biblical witness, like the greatest sin is faking authenticity. Right. Like the in, across <laughs> the entire story. Right. And yet I do think you're right. I mean, Jeff, like it's so everywhere, you know, especially in, in today's religious communities, Christian religious communities, there's this like great big show. And I, and I just want to say it's a, it, like gently, it's a really courageous thing to stop faking. It's a really courageous thing to face yourself and it's a little shaky and anxiety producing, but it's so helpful just to get clear, whatever it is, even if it's, you know, bad or something you've avoided for a long time to get clear about who you are is to drop that, that game. And that that's the beginning of a really beautiful and sometimes painful journey. Je- Jeff, you're highlighting the part where people, you know, they may not relate to you anymore, or you may not relate to them. In my experience, it tends to be like a self-selecting out kind of thing. You ever been uncomfortable in someone's presence because they're authentic and they're just relaxed and they are who they are <laughs> and like you're not quite there. And so you're like, man, I you, you get all like, you know, twitchy. But at the same time, to be around people who are comfortable with themselves is an incredible gift. Pema Chodron, who I keep bringing up, is this uh, Buddhist teacher. After five years of like trying to befriend herself, she realized like she just really didn't like herself because, <laughs> you know, like all the stuff that comes up when you're authentic with yourself is just alarming sometimes. Yeah. I think that's really true. I I think that this idea that somehow we get to a place where, where we fully embrace ourselves, like that's the goal of, of becoming authentic, authentic or the goal of facing oneself. That's probably false. I mean, that's, that's like the Hallmark card. Um, and it may not be true. It may not be the true path. So when you do come to face yourself, you know, you may, you may not really like yourself. And then what do you do? You find a community that's doing the same thing. That's what, that's how I feel the only way forward is. That's what gives me energy is to know that there are other people who are doing their best 
to truly encounter themselves and to be authentic in the world. That gives me energy to keep trying. So what does authenticity and belonging have to do with each other? You and I have had a lot of conversations about that, Mm -hmm. about how our identities are like co-created. They're not just something that's just a given, like it's something that happens in community. I think that there's there's an element of of like mirroring that you see from other people to, to see your own self that you can't get by yourself. I tried it, you guys. I tried for several years to be by myself with all the windows shut and to fix myself. It doesn't work. <laughs> Just wanted to say that. Like that that's not that's not a possibility. You need other people to be able to go through that process. I mean, there are some cultures who like uh, a person growing up knows better than to name themselves or define themselves until the elders have come around them and and said this is who you are this is what we see in you and then you know the the hope is that there's some resonance between the way that one the, the individual feels about who they are and then also the way the community holds them and sees them and i think i think that's pretty powerful i do think there has to be a balance there and it is balance that's why i love the gym cuz in the gym like put your headphones in there's like the veneer of community because everyone's there. We're all sweaty together. We're all doing our own work. Like, I don't know. You don't get that when you're at home. But at the same time, nobody can do the lifting for me. And so it's it's like I'm committed to this journey. I'm committed to doing it myself. But there's also other people who are committed too. So there's this like uni- unity in that. Just thinking about folks who have come into authenticity or, or sort of an encounter and struggle with authenticity after having built some measure of a life based on uh, inauthenticity because then the movement into being true to yourself risks a great deal. I mean, you, some people lose everything, who they are at work, who they are at home, who they are with their friends is not who they are. And they come to realize that. And, and that, um, you know, that crossroads is, is a, is a pretty threatening one. And, you know, the work that we all share in, we've journeyed alongside folks who have recently come to that realization and they're like, what am I supposed to do? For anyone listening that might be at that crossroads, we really feel for you and we recognize the magnitude of, of those realizations. So hopefully you'll, you'll be able to keep listening. Maybe something else will be helpful. But those, those crossroad moments are, are significant. I, and I think sometimes age and suffering bring you closer to that, whether you want it or not. That's my experience. And it, Parker Palmer talks about age being like, f- somehow it's like stripping you of everything that's not authentically you. It doesn't always happen for people, but that tends to be the process. And I think it's the same thing for with suffering. Like when I was in chaplaincy working at the hospital, it's like when we encounter these really rough moments, sometimes it strips everything everything from us. And then we're like, man, what is left going through that process early before you, you know, before you face intense suffering or before you, uh, you know, you let the world do that to you is a, is a courageous act. So if you're at that crossroads and you're choosing that, like you've got friends, lots of them. Well, I I wonder with all of that, it seems that a conversation in our country and our culture we talk about authenticity a lot, and I feel like the things that we talk about a lot are reflecting something that we feel we don't have a lot of. And 
we don't have anything built in to our structure. You know, for many of us that have worked with adolescents, we don't have anything built in that really allows people, especially in more fundamental circles that allows people to discover and give them the tools to practice authenticity as, as a discipline or value or whatever. And then on top of that, you throw in the primary means in which we communicate with one another are there to promote a certain amount of inauthentic behavior, you know, the right framing of your photo, uh, here, the things that we're putting out there and putting public. So, you know, we can talk about authenticity and all that kind of stuff, but like, then there's that, how do you build that in to a culture, to a life? And I mean, we've recently had a conversation about parenting and, you know, I think part of that is modeled. And then part of that is, you know, making real change and creating new norms. And I think that there's, that's the other issue is that, yeah, we can talk about the authentic self. It's become a buzzword in a lot of ways. Like it's, and, but are we really doing that work? Which is why I'm very thankful for more like, um, not to say not, this isn't obviously to diminish the, her, her academic achievements, which are, which are great, but more popular figures like Brene Brown, who are, who are interacting with people that are in those fears more often and bringing in that experience and that knowledge and, and talking about those things in spheres that aren't, you know, isolated to academia and these little bubbles of privilege all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, Jeff, you're so right. You know, how do we, what systems are in place to help bring adolescents up or young? It's not adolescence. It starts from birth, right? But all the way through to, to help kids practice authenticity. And we change. I think that's the other thing yes. that's really important <laughs> for us to remember is that it's not like a once and for all. I have discovered my authentic self. Mm-mm. Now I'm now I'm learning how to embrace that authentic self and voila, the rest of my life is just a you know, a blessed path of joy. Cuz we use um, language like uh, finding ourselves as like a treasure hunt and you know, once you find the grail, then all is yeah, I think that the, the rhetoric really adds to that for sure. Right. And and I mean, you know, no there's no more clear evidence of how we change watching kids grow up. Obviously, a 10-year-old is not the same as a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old, you know? They're growing, developing, incorporating new things into their understanding of the world and themselves. So, yeah, so so it's not just like a treasure hunt, but it's it's a constant process. On the edge of that, this this is so brilliant. I really appreciate you saying that that it's it's like the journey and not necessarily the destination. But on the edge of that, we do have powerful experiences that we would call self-actualization or enlightenment or things like that, where we see like ourselves really truly for the first time. And we have this wonderful experience of like becoming ourselves. But really, that's the beginning, right? That's the that's like the the entryway into the path. That's not that's not a terminal place to end up. You don't reach Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, whatever, and you reach self-actualization and you're done. That's just like the beginning of a journey deeper into that kind of stuff. I say Abraham's Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs is is needs to come down. Really? I know. 
that, you know, I've studied all of this in psychology and in various uh-huh. other forms. And I just, I think like it's done its job and we need to move mm-hmm. on beyond it because this idea that somehow there's this, like the step, the step ladder towards self-actualization is not the experience of most people in the world. It may be for white privileged men, European men, but it's not most people's experience. Interesting. So self-actualization can happen in so many different ways and it weaves together all of those things that Maslow says are stepping stones. As a side note, but he himself said, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so if all you have is his hierarchy, then everything (laughs) looks like it belongs to it. You know, that's funny. Yeah. Even the term self-actualization, what does that mean? You know, there is no like end point there. For for me, it was self-ownership. I remember the moment it happened. I was like 27 years old. And there was this moment where I was like, wait a minute. Like I own myself and I kind of need to. If I'm even going to, and I used a lot of more evangelical language, I guess, or Christian language, but if I'm going to give myself to God or if I'm going to do, there's this priority of like finally coming to own myself, you know, like that's the gift of the community is they're giving yourself yourself to yourself. And then when you come into possession of that, to me, that felt like self-actualization and that, that term rang true for me. Yeah. But there's no, there's no, like, that's not going to happen just once in your life. And that's not sure. And, and because <laughs> you're right, because I mean, you because you step down yeah. a few steps, that doesn't mean it's not still happening. It's part of the circumstances that you're in, like the 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 cultural that you live in, and how much privilege and wealth that allows you to have freedom to do those things. Like there's only oh, I mean, so many layers to that. And to say that there's one moment of self actualization, I mean, it's the rhetoric we were all given in evangelicalism. If we want to go back to that. You you remember the date of your salvation, right? Because that was. It and it's the same thing is that you don't need to find yourself anymore. You don't need to have any kind of self awareness or authenticity because Jesus is your authenticity. You 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 hand that over in that one moment, and it becomes not only your holy grail and your testimony, but it becomes your entire drive to relate with the rest of the world is to create that moment for them. And that I mean, we're seeing how that works out, you know, for everyone. Yeah. Well, what other metaphors are there, Alan, for um, relating to oneself besides ownership or possession? Totally. I think that's only one. Or I, even I think, God's relationship to us, right? Right. Yeah. There's friendly. There's a friendliness. I love that one. I love the idea of friend friendship. Like you're a friend to yourself. I, I'm experimenting with stuff off the side and I don't... <laughs> I'm not going to talk about all of it on this episode. But uh, I think there is like an, an observer inside of all of us something that is watching what we're doing that is uniquely us and it's a part of us, but that observes everything we do from a place of compassion and like understanding. And so when I really rest and I have these like mystical experiences, sometimes like I can experience that L- that part of myself. And so when I, when I interact with like my family or with people I love, I think there are parts of them too. And this is what I want to ask in this episode. Um, do you do you think it's possible that there are parts of us that are observing what we do that are not necessarily caught up in everything that we do? Like if you turn, I think it was Ram Dass who said, if you turn uh, awareness back at itself, what is it looking at, right? Like it's the, you can think about your hand. Like if you think about your hand, you can draw your attention to it. 
like there's some part of you that's drawing like there's an awareness that is that is you that is drawing attention to it but when you turn awareness back on itself what is it looking at and there's this sense of like it's this almost different category of being do you think it's possible that there are parts of ourselves that are always watching and not just like dictating but just observing what we're doing should we not talk about that this episode? I, I would love to talk about that, but I feel like I've talked a lot already. So, <laughs> what do you think, Rajiv? Is there an observer in us? Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting proposition. Um, I'm just not sure it leads anywhere. Oh, okay. Mean, so meaning, meaningful. Okay, so for me, where that leads as a metaphor is. If I can even access the place where I'm watching what I'm doing without judgment, I'm on the right path. And it brings me to a place where I get to know myself. Because if I'm already judging what I'm doing, I'm like putting a barrier between me and my experience. And so if I can even access that, like the, the observer or the watcher part of me, that's just 100% non-judgmental, 100% awareness of what I'm doing. It helps me get clear about what I'm feeling and who I am. And that clarity is really hard to get to if you're if, if I'm in stuck in that place of judgment because you know we all have scripts in our head like that person's stupid I'm stupid you know all this stuff like just constantly coming up why did I do that like just all this like judgmental at least I do in my in my head I think there's a certain percentage of the population that doesn't have like a script running in their head all the time but for me I do and getting to that that basic awareness that it's non-judgmental that feels like a an entryway to clarity and then if I believe other people have that, there's a community there of like a non-judgmental community of compassionate awareness. If that's in everyone else, they're watching them, their own, their own suffering, you know, and there's a, an element of them that's not just their suffering. That's not just their judgment, but something deeper and, and true to who they are. Yeah, I think, you know, clarity around one's self is important. But I think criticism, not not self-flagellation for the sake of duration, but self-criticism in, in a healthy way uh, helps us move into to being a more edifying entity in the world. Because if we just walk around going, oh, this is what I want to do, and maybe what you want to do is harmful, to other people um, and you're not recognized. I mean, being clear about what you're doing, but then also going, well, you know, maybe this isn't quite the right thing to do. It's, it's my thought that if you truly have that experience of, of recognizing yourself beyond judgment and recognizing other people, it would lead you into those things. I don't think you can really have that experience and come from those, that, that place of, of, of honest, honestly seeing yourself and other people in community, that kind of compassionate, non-judgmental awareness, it leads you into that edifying stuff. If it's real, if you have that real experience, I think but, the, the, the hate and the stuff that tears people down and, the, and that stuff, like, I think those are scripts we're running. Sure. Sure. And that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I just think there's some people that go down that path that end up in a, in a state of complete self-delusion. Absolutely. And that's why we need community. Because in that in that space, you're not actually ending up, you're not encountering what I'm like talking about. You're you're still doing something else. 
part of what makes me suspect is you bring up Ram Das. <laughs> sure. I haven't read a lot of his stuff. I just heard that like so, yeah, I haven't heard a lot of his stuff, but uh I, I don't know how much of that's like cultural appropriation or but I, I've had experiences on my own and and I hadn't had any contact with some of like the the Hindu thought. And then I I read I've been reading some more, not just Ram Das, but other places where they talk about like the heart cave and things like that, that are, is ex- it's my experience to a T and that I think has been the most helpful for my, my own relationship with myself and my relationship with the world. Yeah. And I, it, you know, I, I love Hindu philosophy and Hindu teaching and have, mm-hmm. you know, varying degrees of relationship with some different Hindu deities personally. Sure. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I I just really struggle not with the entirety of what Ram Das has put out there, but struggle with some things. Uh, so that that just as soon as his name came up, I was like, oh. <laughs> I saw it in your face. I saw the microaggression. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't. I haven't read like all the stuff he's he's written, and uh, I just heard that one example used by a third party of awareness looking back at itself, and that's like. That's not, it doesn't belong to Ram Das. That belongs to lots of traditions. Um, I don't think that truly encountering that non judgmental awareness of yourself, I don't think that spells out self delusion. And I don't think it harms compassion. I think it builds those things. Do you think a little bit communicating it that way feels like overwhelming and impossible? Like it feels like when we're talking about like spaces within ourselves. And once we get to this space, then everything becomes clear. But those two things like th- that's that judgment can still exist in that space. If we're looking at, at, at like certain moments or certain habits or certain patterns that we can take things one by one and allow those things to coexist in one space and not feel like we have to have this full revelation that cleans the entire room of our heart, <laughs> you know, to use that stupid analogy or whatever. But I think that um like even just hearing that to me, it's like, how how do you move away from that judgmental? I can do it here in this moment for this second, and that'll give me enough juice to kind of get to that next place. All all the spiritual teachers would talk about how like you, you don't live in that place all the time. It's not something that's like you're constantly having an awakening experience or constantly having, you know, some sort of enlightenment or it's 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 something that you experience and that like affects your life and something you go back to, but you know, you and, and trying hard is the opposite of what the point is, too. You know, <laughs> like, have I reached a place of non-judgment? Well, you're, you're like being hard on yourself already. Like, so that's why I think the metaphors for authenticity that work for me, Bonnie, are like friendliness and grace or openness. And like, if you can at least start from a place of like, well, I'm going to just watch what I do without judgment. You start to enca- I start to encounter stuff that I didn't even realize was there that I wouldn't have if I would have been judging myself in the first place. So if you're a listener, you're listening to this, like, just give it a shot, like spend five minutes, five minutes trying not to judge yourself and just sitting with yourself and watching yourself like that. That alone is worth gold in my mind to the the spiritual journey toward authenticity. That could be, you know, super helpful to practice uh, non-judgmental awareness. I do think that it sort of reframes language that we've all been steeped in for such a long time, and it may you know, without a careful look at it, it may sound a lot like, you know, what we've been taught that in Christ, 
right? <laughs> we we're free from judgment and that there is this ever abiding presence with us that doesn't judge us and reaches out to us with compassion and is just there, which is fine. I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm just saying that when we approach new things, I think it's really helpful to um, also take a look at like, how is this maybe just a, a reframing of mm-hmm. the language that I've inherited to keep me sort of comfortable rather than actually moving along in my spiritual path? And how would I know? So I think that's the more important question that's is great. how would you know the difference between sort of just using new language for the same old thing and actually trying something different that helps to evolve oneself spiritually. When, you're, when your actions change, when your brain's rewired, when you start thinking differently right. and acting differently. And that, but, that's, that, that's what, that's Jesus's like, oh, like judge it by the fruits or whatever, right? Like just look at how, it, what does it lead to? Yeah. And I'm, I, and I'm a Christian. Like I'm a, like I can, for the first time in my life in the last couple of years can authentically say I'm a Christian. So I'm not opposed to any of that, but I do think it's just like asking yourself the questions. Yeah. I think the, the phrase that you just used to open that thought, Bonnie, non-judgmental awareness has to be together. That's like a single word for this mm-hmm. because just not self non-judgment I, Trump is a great poster child for that but non-judgmental awareness of self is and then what you're talking about Alan then the fruits of that work begin to show and change and and y- you then observe yourself being a different person emerging as a different person so the the languaging can be subtle sometimes but it's really important to to think think it through carefully, you know, take some things through their logical, through to their logical conclusion um, before you invest too much in it. That's the tension, non-judgment and awareness. Those two things are really powerful, right? But they're not exactly the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. I love how you said there there should be like one word for it. It should be one word, non-judgmental awareness, Mm because you have to have both. Mm -hmm. Right. And that takes, it's, it's a muscle. Like it takes practice. And I think your way of describing how to, to practice by just sitting with oneself and, um, you know, trying it out is a great way to do it. I also think like our triggers, which sometimes are the most powerful things that we feel, especially as we're leaving one setting, moving out. We don't even know where we're headed half the time. We just know we have to leave. How do we know we have to leave? Because we get trigger after trigger after trigger that something's not right. Those are super important to pay attention to. And there's the initial way of paying attention, which is just something's not right. And then as we as we continue onward, we can pay attention to them in a new way. Like we can look at them and say, what about me is being triggered? And maybe what's being triggered is one of those layers of myself that I need to peel back in order to actually discover what's authentic about me. And that's a whole different kind of question about, you know, what's triggering me. Um, Maybe what's still triggering me is old assumptions that I'm carrying forward or um, wounds that I thought I'd healed and hadn't, but those wounds aren't really me. 
those are wounds that, you know, are yet to be healed so that I can be the whole person that I am. So I can live into the wholeness that I am. What do you think? And also in connection with that, Bonnie, like that idea of, yeah, being aware of what triggers you and stuff like that. But I think that that awareness is then one step. Like, okay, I know these things trigger me. I know myself well enough to be here. And then it becomes an avoiding game. Like, I just won't be around it anymore. And so we we sit for years with awareness of ourselves, but we're not doing anything about it. We're not like, we're just like, no, I know. That's who I am. And then we ex- we almost live in that as an accepted of who we are. We become attached to them. Yeah. You know, like, mm-hmm. they're my babies. They're my precious almost, you know? Yeah. Man, that is so interesting. Yeah, we, we own those triggers, like, as if they're a, a part of us rather than seeing them as teachers. And I think that's, or we just avoid it altogether. We try to create a life that we're never triggered, right? And so I think those negative emotions and negative experiences are some of the most powerful teachers that we should just pay attention to and welcome them, light a candle for them and say, hey, come sit on the couch and talk to me. Like that's, when you were talking, I was thinking of Rumi's guest house. I don't know if anyone uh, remembers that. Yes, that's great. Yeah, Ruby's guest house talks about how the human being is a guest house. And every morning there's a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from the beyond. There's something so deeply true in a lot of spiritual traditions of leaning in instead of leaning out of when things feel hard and they're like they're anxiety producing rather than trying to avoid it, sit with it, like go toward it and and welcome it in. Well, I think what's so beautiful about that poem is that Rumi says each human's a guest house. So the authentic human is the house itself, not the guests that come in and leave. And I think that's where we often, we conflate the two and we become attached to these triggers. I mean, that's one word for it as if they are us or they're, they are an authentic part of us rather than welcoming them in, learning from what we must learn and then saying goodbye and welcoming the next, you know? Um, I think that's, and I think that's Jeff, what you were referring to, too, when, when you were saying that, you know, we kind of, it's like step one, then step two, then step three. Yeah. Eventually to get to the place where you know your house. Right. Well, and, and I, I really try, and I've, I've tried like consciously over the last decade to stop using words that, that they dictate a process like evolution and evolution, like, because it feels so like you're going to get to this place, but we yes. don't have a lot of language for it. And that's what I'm starting to realize over the last couple of years yeah. is like, man, our language is so inadequate to talk about things like these, because we always default to evolution. Like you're moving into something you know, instead of this fluid back and forth, like it just, it is. And uh, that's why I struggle with all these metaphors. Like anytime I hear a conversation about the self, and uh, you know, talk about triggers, Alan. When you were talking earlier about Ram Dass and something like the observer of yourself, like all that to me was just like, oh my gosh, it's so exhausting to like <laughs> listen to all that because for me personally, like it just th- there's no, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm just more practical in the way that I approach these things. And if I sit there and those headspaces and entertaining these, uh, 
these these ideas and try to find a place of like enlightenment i <laughs> i can't think of a, a non-crass way to <laughs> illustrate how that feels for me but it's just like this this moment it's, and then it's over and it's like it's like poison yeah. i think that i think that's what the low like lojong teaching in buddhism talks about is the the medicine like becomes poison for people because you're you're getting caught up and wrapped up in all of that and it's not like doing what it's supposed to. So I, I, I hear that. I just, I just feel like there's, there's so much like the, the practical side that we can get into that, that are a lot more helpful. And I think sometimes the language that we use when we're describing like the journey of the self, uh, does, does its opposite effect where we're just like, like, you know, we're talking about all these explorations and for some of us, it's, you know, why do I keep eating potato chips when I hear a bell? You know I mean? Like, <laughs> You know, okay, we can figure that out. It's like a little thing. But for some of us, those things are deep and you can't do it alone. You can't even do it with your friends and family. You need a professional. Like, and we have to be able to, to let people know that there are degrees to this kind of thing. And I think when we, when we make the language of self discovery, then everything becomes a self help book on the 99 cent rack, right? And it all becomes cheapened when we use this language that puts everyone on this same level in terms of where they are in their discovery. And, and when we talk about like evolution, you need to get to this place. We, we create a hierarchy and we're not even realizing it by trying to use language that is like level. And I just think that these conversations are important and they do need to happen in community and they do need to have moments by ourselves. We do need to have moments where we talk to loved ones that can help point out patterns to us that we can't see. We also then need to know like, where does it get to that point where we need someone more in our life? Because it's, it's complicated and it's, it's life. Like it's just, it's moving forward. And I think that that's going back to that conversation, going back to the beginning of the conversation, that's where those tools in development become so important. And I think that maybe the, a lot of the reason we're all so lost in how to discover this is because we weren't given that foundation. So we're trying to discover that foundation later in life. Highlighting something you said, like you, like early on, you said it just, it, it is, it's not just an evolution. It is already. I, I think for me, that's really helpful. Like a tree is what it is. It already is that thing. A human being ourselves are what they are already whether we're aware of them or not, whether we're operating out of them or not, there is an element of us that's just, that just is. And so you can start this work literally wherever you're at, you know, like you don't need, you don't need to add all these pieces to really start to encounter just what is. And I think they're helpful and necessary to go a lot further. But, and you said like, you know, needing professionals. I I think there are guides who have been down the road in, in, you know, like the elders in cultures, they, uh, They've been through that process, and so they know how to be compassionate to the people who are going through it. But that's why we, when we talk about all this stuff, for me, the, the most helpful, not perfect, but the most helpful model has always been spiral dynamics because it takes into consideration where you are in a given moment and recognizes and acknowledges and encourages that you might not be in this space anymore and you could be over here and it'll manifest itself differently. And I think to a certain extent on a personality level, the Enneagram does that, but I don't think it's as, uh, I don't know, robust of a model as spiral dynamics, but that's just a personal and it, it, they're totally different also. So I understand that as well, but you, you put and, them together. You, right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And er, every model is, is only as good as its application. Yes. <laughs> you know, which, which is like a constant and an ongoing discovery as well. But I think, yeah, I mean, there's, 
there's that like not wanting to get stuck in this hierarchy of evolution, which for whatever reason, we've deemed that a hierarchy. I'm not sure why. I, I don't think something new and different isn't necessarily something better. Right. Um, and also we don't want to default, I think, in like this idea of essentialism, like is there, there's something that is, you know? So it's like, it's ising like all the time. There you go. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, you're right. Language is, is really a struggle in order to be able to articulate these deep, deep spiritual concepts and authenticity, a conversation authenticity is always going to bring out a struggle with language. I think, I mean, that it seems like if we're struggling, we're probably trying to be as true as we can to what we're talking about. But the other thing I wanted to say was even the term progressive Christian, progressive, it, it evokes a sense of forward movement, whatever that means, right? Well, Bonnie, now you're messing with our brand. Come on. <laughs> like, let's, let's not go overboard. <laughs> so, yeah. And we've had the experience of starting in one place and moving into another. So we're all in our bodies. We have that experience. We know what that's like. And so because we know that, then we're like, we're here now. Where are we headed next? I think that's just a natural development, particularly in the spiritualities of people like us who have experienced a, migra a migration, a spiritual migration. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that we've exhausted ourselves. <laughs> so any, any final thoughts before we move on to our segment for this week? I hope people engage with this. I really want to hear what other people's experience are experiences are with authenticity and mm -hmm. finding one's authentic self, if we want to use that term, but also like just practicing that awareness in the world um, of what is authentic, not judgmentally practicing that awareness. So listeners, please reach out. Mm -hmm. And I, I would just say, take small bites. Yeah. You, know, you, you might see this huge, mm thing that has to be taken on and small bites over time and it's done. Oh, I mean, you, you know what I mean? It's not done. It's never done, but you, you get there. So small bites, it can be helpful. My small bites are like, you know, 15 minutes or I start out with five, 15 minutes in the morning after coffee, when I'm really awake of sitting with myself, I can't take more than that. 15 minutes is brutal. And honestly, it's really rewarding. The other thing about, about my small bites is finding people who listen and, and don't project onto me, but actually sit with me. So I think my encouragement is if you can find a friend who's willing to have conversations like this about who you really are, try to schedule some time with them every once in a while and, you know, set an alarm for five minutes and just like be in, in your world every day. And uh, that's what works for me. All right, then. Good stuff. Well, let us know what you think. You can add your voice to this particular conversation and comment on the show notes at irenacast.com slash 180. Also in the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the other ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenacast.com slash 180. On the other side of the music, we're going to be playing a brand new segment called One of These Things Is Like the Other. 
All right, we are on the other side of the music, and we are introducing a brand new segment. And these tend to go really well, or just we don't know what's going to happen. So uh, this this segment was brought to us by our very own Alan, and it is called "One of These Things Is Like the Other." So, Alan, give us give us an example. Explain to us and the listeners what we're going to be doing here, and uh, and then let's get into it. Sure. Uh, the idea is that you pick two things, and then you pick a third thing, and you argue about what which one of those two is more like that thing. I don't have any great examples. You have a dog and a cow. Which one is more like a hammer? And then we could argue about why that is the case. Obviously, our examples are going to be way better, but this is such a hard game to play that I couldn't think of anything better for the example around. But basically, it's just free association and lots of argument. So two of my favorite things in the world. Kind of what we do here. So let's. <laughs> That's what we do. Let's see how it goes. So then, Alan, just start us off with the, the, the sure. first one. Give us your. Okay. These are kind of completely random, but I want to hear what your opinions are. And when you give your opinion, you have to really stand by it. Like. This is like a life or death situation. You have to really defend why you think why you think your answer is right. Okay. Which one is more like a church pew that you sit in, a Taylor Swift album, or a cigar? That's that's an interesting I, for me it would depend on the context. <laughs> there you go. I, Give me some that's context. easy. That's so easy. It's, it's definitely a cigar. It's most like a church pew for the obvious reasons. There's a scent. When you walk into a church, you can smell the pews. Like there's there's something that just especially, especially if, they're, if they're padded, if they're wooden or padded, there's just like a smell in a church. And if you take the pews out, the smell goes away. And cigars have fragrance as well. Yeah, and you'd be surprised how many people put their mouths on a pew. Put your mouth on a pew for sure. <laughs> Babies oh, put their mouths on pews oh. all the time. True. They slobber all over them. You do that with a cigar. Thank this you. This is Jeff. really embarrassing, but I, I do I know think, what a pew tastes like. <laughs> I think babies put their mouths on Taylor Swift too. When she takes those little photo shoots with babies, right? <laughs> oh my god! Isn't that it's a thing? A she Taylor does? Swift album. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sure they gnaw on those too. So Jeff, you're you're with a cigar also. I, I'm totally with a cigar. Like the, the color palette also matches. Like. <laughs> Um, that they're old and associated with white people. Uh, <laughs> Church pews are not all about white people, Jeff. Come on, they're I. I think Scars. yeah, I think that's a hands down an easy one. Like Taylor Swift albums bring you joy, and uh, <laughs> they you can you know take them on the go. And pews are. St- Daryl and stagnant and they stay in one spot and you can't move them or else you're subject to the committee of a church. I think that, you know, and th- there's regulations around cigars and which ones can be imported and where they go and who can, all kinds of stuff. So I think that's an easy one. Cigars and peace. Are you, are you with, are you with that? No, I mean, some churches. Yes, I'm with that. And in other churches, I'm like, man, this pew is like a Taylor Swift album. It's bringing me some joy. And I'm going to take that joy with me. It's portable. <laughs> I love that. And you can rest in it, you know, while it's good for your you stuff, good for your soul is being subtle. And you out. don't, and you don't want to admit you like it, there you go. <laughs> but you actually do like it. <laughs> and everyone's always talking about getting new ones. <laughs> I like this. Oh, that's a hard toss up. Well, very nice. 
Okay, so we have two for cigars. So apparently, church pews are like cigars. We have to go with that. But I'm I'm with you, Regina. I like the I like the Taylor so, Swift album. So as the presenter of the ideas, you're not the final judge on which argument was, was most, most convincing. Compelling. Yeah, I guess I I could be the judge. Although I personally would like to go with Taylor Swift album. I think your arguments were best. So the cigars won. Thank well you. done. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. You make I will take that win. Are you keeping score for us? You know, just... yeah. you, you, you made a judgment even though I thought you weren't the judge. <laughs> I'm not judging myself, Rajiv. It's <laughs> totally okay to judge others. <laughs> All right. Who's next? I'll go next. I'll keep I, the score. Why not? I'm, I'm flipping mine because I'm going to ask the question first and then give you the options. Which one is more like a gross bowl of moldy spaghetti? Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell? Oh. I kept it PG. I know my answer, but I'll let you guys go first. And that we're comparing them to a bowl of moldy spaghetti. Right. It's cold and gross. (laughs) Color-wise, Mitch wins, right? It's not putting on the the orange makeup. Unless so, the mold is orange. <laughs> true. True. Unless it's like that, that, you know, weird, like vegetable dough, kind of like a carrot uh, spaghetti. <laughs> or whatever. Um, but if we're just going standard spaghetti palette, I'm, I'm, I have to make a pros and cons list for this one. Cause I got <laughs> um, moldy. There's like a stagnant. It stays. I guess that goes to Mitch McConnell as well because he's kind of been in the same spot. At least, you know. That was my argument. Donald Trump has, you know, corrupted various industries. Um, I feel like Mitch McConnell would be more home in like a bowl and like a confined space. And, you know, uh, uh, Trump might need to move around a little bit. Um, yeah. I, put a, I, instead of meatballs, it had golf balls. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm gonna go with, changing it. I'll go with the spaghetti also. Uh, that Mitch McConnell is more like it because he has been around in politics for a really long time. And, uh, you know, the old moldy feeling of uh, subverting things all the time. Taking something that's like, you know, just meh, like a staple of American America is politics. That's, that's our spaghetti. And uh, making it incredibly gross for a really long time. Um, yeah, I, I would say Mitch McConnell. And extending just the, the the spaghetti metaphor as a food, like it's it's a it's an Italian food. So, like, of course, McConnell would appropriate it some way or corrupt it because it's not. <laughs> uh, I think that there's still some like sustenance in uh, maybe and maybe it's really bad for you. But like there's still some sort of like sustenance to to what Mitch McConnell does. It's not great. Whereas, you know, Donald Trump is completely vapid of any calories. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> Sugar-free jello dust is something that I would expect to be associated with Trump, not spaghetti. <laughs> Sugar-free jello dust and some cocaine. <laughs> there's, there's what do you think, Bonnie? Trump. I don't know. This is hard for me because um, I'm not sure of the value in this. So it's like hard for me. <laughs> I'm not sure what we're actually accomplishing here, but I like it. I think I will. I'll go with Trump because um, I really do think that mold spreads 
mold is mm. is not something that's static at all in my opinion it's something that grows and increases over time and i think that um when donald trump took office there might have been just a little bit of mold on the spaghetti and then as time has <laughs> as we've come now to almost the end of 4 years there's a lot of mold on the spaghetti and it makes me really sad so when I see moldy spaghetti, what I see is like food that could have been good food that has now gone bad. And um, I kind of feel that way about our country because of Trump. Feels like it's been longer than four years to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. All right. Which one won, Rajiv? I don't know. I, I was pretty set on Mitch McConnell and then Bonnie and that. A spready mold thing that kind of won me over. So I'm going to have to go with the spready mold. Nice. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Bonnie has two points. She's in the lead. This is my first time ever. I knew I was going <laughs> to like this game. <laughs> All right, Bonnie, what's your? Okay. I have like six. So I'm going to pick one. Oh, man. Whoa. I'll pick an easy one. Okay. Um, which is more like a tree? Cooking or moving? I have my answer, but I don't want to be the first person every time. Well, you just are the first person. Like, you just said something. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't announce that you don't want to be the first person because that makes you, by default, the first person. So just go ahead. <laughs> I think it's like – I think moving is more like a tree because plants can, like – they can do so much that we can't do. They can escape a steel cage. They can push out and – move through concrete the roots of a tree can break concrete and things that seem so solid and normal they can move straight through it and so i think you know taking what you have what you've been given you know what you have oxygen and sunlight and then turning it into this like solid movement through things that seem like barriers yeah that feels like movement to me mm. i'm going to go with cooking because you you have you're rooted in these staples or best practices and from there you can flourish into new dishes into new experiments and the very metaphor that we use to to move is we uproot our family and go here so like the (laughs) metaphor that we use in a colloquial sense i would suggest that moving is the opposite of a tree i think jeff is just addicted to language and stuck in it so that was that's my counterpoint (laughs) another another bit of evidence for jeff's literalism (laughs) <laughs> let's not get into literalism i'm gonna also uh, my pizza thing also <laughs> my my perspective shifts when i when i move you know when i move places my life changes a lot and my mind changes for the better sometimes and when i look at trees it's the same thing my mind changes it helps me it, it like helps me think about new ways and let go of of some stress and some stuff in my home i needed to get rid of anyway so hiking always does that for me when i look at trees yeah, I'm I'm gonna go with cooking on this one too. Although I can see your point, Alan. And I love trees. You guys know I have a thing for trees. But like, <laughs> you know, cooking trees are, you know, they're there, they're permanent. They they require sustenance every day. Cooking is to some somebody's gotta be doing some cooking every day to keep us going. And and there's some reciprocity in a way, like food scraps can feed the tree, the tree can feed us. Mm. So there's there's a cyclical somewhat ongoing synergistic relationship between trees and cooking houses are normally made of trees i mean there's that but but then it's the end of the tree also uh you know 
it's you know trees are always growing but it's a little illusory we don't see them as a being becoming process we just see them as a thing and we're always moving we're not static we're always moving and so then that way moving is like a tree this you're reaching now i think you already had your turn (laughs) i know alan doesn't just want to be the first one but also the last one to speak (laughs) so many I just want to win. I want to win one point, and then they're putting all my chips in this one. Yeah, they're they're all good arguments. You all get a point. No, you got to pick. Do you have to pick that, that. I, don't, I don't. I can. I can <laughs> say I don't have to pick. I think all of those are valid arguments, and I think a tree is like both cooking and moving. It makes perfect sense. So all right, I'll, get, I'll, I'll give myself. Everybody a point. gets a point. <laughs> I don't like where this is headed. <laughs> I, I think you have to you have to choose. Doesn't that make it a little more fun? Because it puts the apparently we don't to have to do which, anything. Which argument was the most convincing? You're you're not picking which one is more like a tree. You're picking. They are all is... convincing. Yeah, but sometimes the person that just keeps talking is the one that's most convincing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Which one of these things is most like the apocalypse? A Denny's slash Waffle House after 1 a.m. <laughs> a Denny's. Or an amusement park. And I say Denny's because I, th- I feel like based off my travels, <laughs> you got to put that in quote. But hold up. Denny's and Waffle House are two different universes. I, but we, I'm saying on the West Coast, we don't have – I'm trying to hit all the demographics. On the West Coast, Denny's is the closest thing we have to the Waffle House experience in, it's in my experience. And it's right? after 1 a.m., which – is basically a twenty-four hour diner after one AM. Let's okay. let's okay. Ge- right. put a generic right. there. Or an amusement park. I was gonna say an amusement park. That's more like the apocalypse to me. Cause no truth is revealed at Denny's at one AM. <laughs> it's just illusion spinning out of control. But when you have to wait in line for two and a half hours, you know, in a uh an amusement park just to go on one tiny little ride, so much truth is revealed about like the pointlessness of half the things we do. Why am I living the way I am? Why am I standing in line for two and a half hours for something that's not going to even be fun? Like, I think there's an unveiling and a revealing that happens. Whereas at Denny's, it's just complete delusion. I think it depends on where your diner is in the world. Um, Is it in the suburbs? Is it in the middle of the city? Is it in a rural community? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I think there's like context that has to be taken into account. And same thing with the amusement park. Are we talking about, you know, like Disneyland? Are we talking about... Um, this game does not leave way for nuance. <laughs> You've just got to go with the general generalization but of those two experiences. All things considered, I say Denny's or a, a diner after 1 a.m. Because there's a different, um, I would say, more real, authentic connections or uh, I don't know, there's something really real about being at a Denny's or any diner after 1am. The clientele is different. The people who work there, you know, they're sort of operating out of, out of a more raw place, at least in my experience. Um, People when they like, nobody passes each other without saying something after 1am at a, in a Denny's, like it's just a, an expectation. You're just going to have some sort of human to human connection. And I think all of that is kind of like what happens in the apocalypse through the apocalypse. 
Are you saying people who work at amusement parks are fake? <laughs> I think it's their job. Maybe the ones I in think costumes? That's their, I think it's their job. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's in the job description. <laughs> oh, Bonnie. Dang it. <laughs> All right. So this is a... This is definitely a California reference, but I'm going to get specific here because I've I've been to a lot of late night diners and it's it's a mixed bag. Some are great, some you know people are getting out of a concert or a late movie, so it, the crowd kind of depends. And I, I love diners, so and partly because you get some weirdos in there, it's it's like a place where anybody can show up. Um, but <laughs> where I felt like something could break loose at any second for any. <laughs> any benign reason was Six Flags Magic Mountain in Southern California. Oh, yes, yeah. that's what I was thinking. <laughs> that, about. that place yeah. is like, I mean, and the rides are good. They are killer <laughs> rides. But that place, I'm like, oh, my God, something, someone's <laughs> going to get stabbed right about now. And they wouldn't have done anything. Oh, I love that. There's so, an energy in that place, isn't there? Oh, like it's like nowhere else in the world. That's and, true. And we were, you know, as a family, we were on just a little SoCal road trip, and we went to Six Flags Magic Mountain after two days in Disney, and that was a huge mistake. Because, <laughs> like, you know, Disney, everything's like perfect, and you know, it's like in order. Again, for the rides, Six Flags Magic Mountain's great, but. Yeah, it's just that that experience is seared in my memory. Like, holy smokes. My first youth group was right next to it's in the same town as Six Flags Magic yeah. Mountain. And that, that was some <laughs> wild stuff. And I know Jeff took tons of trips to Six Flags Magic well, Mountain. It's funny. This the, the just a little behind the scenes here. This question was crafted by me thinking, what were the two best experiences that I had in youth ministry. I wondered about that. And they that. happened yeah. at a Denny's and they happened at that very magic mountain every like twice a year at that very magic mountain. So then I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to do the obvious because both these places are special to me. How do I compare them to heaven? So I just flipped it to the apocalypse. And that was the that's the 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 nature of the genesis of this particular uh question. So in fact this uh, this whole podcast started at a Denny's after 1 a.m. <laughs> Essentially <laughs> the idea of it, yeah. I think I think a diner after one a.m. in my experience is the most glorious place in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. I is, agree. Maybe I, when we start filming in person, you know, and putting it on YouTube, we'll just have a diner setting, and that's what it'll be. Alan's casting a vision out there. I am throwing it out no, in the world just that no see. one else has talked about. <laughs> that's the one like invitation. If somebody's texting me, is like, "Hey, you want to go get hot fudge Sundays at Denny's at two a.m.?" I'm like, "Yep, I'll be there." Hundred like, percent. One. The one like invitation I will never say no to. <laughs> Hot fudge yeah, sundaes and mozzarella sticks. I love sticks. Denny's and I love the Waffle House. I know people trash on both. I'll, I'll go to either. I've never Me been too. to a Waffle Agreed. House. Oh, think. man. <laughs> Their pecan waffles are good. I don't care what anybody says. Again, great youth trip experiences at the Waffle House, mm-hmm. right? Well, just I grew up back east, so. And what better food any time of the day, but especially late at night? Breakfast food. I mean... You'd, so which which yeah. argument was most compelling, Jeff? Um, I'm gonna <laughs> when I think of the apocalypse personally, I think of uh, a lot of violence and war. So I would say that the the amusement park it still could go either way. Would go <laughs> <laughs> the amusement park. I, I would say the amusement park based off of that. That's kind of where I was headed, and and I, I really take homage with the fact that truth is not revealed uh, at 
a Denny's after 1 a.m. Yeah, I think that's where that? the most truth is revealed, that that who is where the world Alan? opens up. Did you say that's that? Alan Probably said that. Alan. He did. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> what's he talking about? We all got two points. How, how did this happen? Because Bonnie rigged the game by giving everyone yeah, points. <laughs> I love that. That is so perfect. We all got two points. Yay, finally. And it happened authentically. It that's the most important part. <laughs> <laughs> that we each scored to our authentic experience. All right. Our non-judgmental self-awareness and other awareness. That's right. There we go. So maybe we can add play this game with your friends as a way to to kind of exercise your authenticity. I wonder how many people, if anyone, I know we have mixed bag in terms of the segment, like whether people like stay all the way through and they listen to it or whatever. I wonder how many people, like, I wonder if we should develop these into like home games that we can, you know, market and sell and make some commercials oh, for do you like board do games. you do one like anybody who's listening who gives a shit enough to do this <laughs> do one throw it on our facebook page and and i'm going to commit all of us to responding all right very nice all right and if and if you smoke a cigar while listening to a taylor swift album <laughs> in a church pew <laughs> I will yeah. personally <laughs> mail you some merch. We'll make a shirt of that image alone. <laughs> we'll make a shirt of it, <laughs> of you as our prime listener. It could be our new logo. <laughs> you, can, you can do this. We believe in you. <laughs> we believe in you. <laughs> All right. Well, that will do it for us this week. If you enjoy Arenacast and would like to join the work that we are doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at arenacast.com slash PayPal. We're committed to keeping the show for free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support helps. That's arenacast.com slash PayPal. Arenacast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. You can also support the show by simply making sure you subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're listening on. And if the platform allows it, please leave a rating and or review. So for this week, I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. And this is Rajiv. Thanks for joining the conversation. 